Welcome to you all. Um, my name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Glad you could make it through this lovely winter day. Just beautiful out there. Just slushy and wet. Um, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 8. I am, uh, I am preaching under duress this morning. I have a boo-boo on my hand. When I am not a master chef, <clears throat> I'm pretty okay in the kitchen, um, but I do have a little tip for you. When you pull a cast iron skillet out of the oven, make sure that you completely cover the handle before you grab it or else you will cook your hand very, very quickly. I have a big blister here, and it's, uh, it's a big owie. It's a pretty cool-looking blister, though. So just if you see it, just it's the power there shooting out. Okay, First Samuel 8. Uh, we are in the uh, series in First and Second Samuel. If you are noticing the pace at which we are moving it, uh, yes, we will be here for a while. <clears throat> We're going to read all of 1 Samuel 8. Um, if you have a Bible, I definitely encourage you to read it uh, in your hands. If you don't, no problem. We'll have it on the screen for you. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, there were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the, things, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the Lord and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then... Obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. 
He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Would you pray with me? King over all the earth, we, your people, come to you with hands extended, pleading that our hearts might be soft and our ears open. We know that in and of ourselves, we are just like the people of Israel, turning aside to our own way. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, your Holy Word might be illuminated to us, that our hearts might be pierced. God, we pray that you would call us to repentance, call us to the truth, and that our hearts, our affections might be stirred with love for you. We thank you, faithful God, that you care for your people. We entrust ourselves to you. Amen. If you were with us last week, uh, chapter 7 that that Harrison preached for us um, is a story of Israel, in a way, getting things right, relying on God to care for them and fight their battles for them. And they set up this monument, this Ebenezer, at which point they say, the Lord has carried us to this point. And God has cared for them and delivered His people. And chapter 7 in 1 Samuel is intentionally put right next to chapter 8. These two stories stand in contrast to one another. Now, they don't happen close together in time. They happen close together in your Bible, but not in time. By the time we get to chapter 8, Samuel is an old man. He wasn't an old man in chapter 7. There's been some span of time there, several decades in all likelihood. And Samuel has acted as judge, and things have gone fine. But he has started to turn things over to his sons. And his sons, it seems, have done exactly what Eli's sons have done earlier in the book. So even though Samuel is this model of faithfulness, unlike Eli, his sons have ended up just like the sons of unfaithfulness. And they have themselves been taking bribes and perverting justice for their own gain. And so Israel is coming to Samuel and saying, you're old, which isn't that great. Hey, old guy, you're old. We need somebody. You're not going to cut it anymore. Your son's they're losers, and we don't want them. We need a king. No more of this system that we've had for a while. No more judges. Give us a king just like everybody else who will lead us into battle and judge us, which, oh, by the way, is exactly what Samuel has been doing. And it's exactly what every other judge of Israel has done. God has been providing this for His people already. They've had people to judge between them and to lead them into battle. They have already had this. And what they're saying is, we don't want it like this anymore. We want a king. We want a king just like everybody else. 
you know, they have such a nice king. We want a king too. All the cool kids have kings. We want to be cool kids too. And Samuel is supremely annoyed. And God says, look, this is not about you. They are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just make sure they know what they're choosing. And so Samuel gives this long list of of realities of having a king. What he's describing is the establishment of a government that will require taxation and service and probably devolve into thievery and favoritism. And so the people say, you're not talking us off this corner. Give us a king. And so the chapter ends with this ominous note. Samuel tells them to go home. There will be a king that will be provided for them. Now, <clears throat> it's, in, it's interesting to note this beginning comparison in chapter 8 between Samuel and Eli. Samuel and Eli are so different in the book of 1 Samuel, yet their sons end up in the same place. It's, it's probably chastening for us to, to be reminded that when the people of God fail to fulfill their duty uh, in the world, that, that society suffers generally. So in other words, how might things have been different if Samuel's sons were models of faithfulness and just judging? Would Israel have been so keen to come to Samuel and say, give us a king, if they had the sons of Samuel who were carrying on their father's legacy? And leaving aside the, the nuances and complexities of raising faithful children, which I don't know if I'm doing right, there is something to be said that the church should take note and be reminded that when we fail as a people, it is not just us that are harmed, but as society in general that is harmed. It was certainly true in Israel's day, and we can certainly see that over the course of history as well. And a faithless church hurts culture at large. Now, what Israel wants here is not in and of itself a bad thing. In and of itself, it is not necessarily wrong that they want a king. The law has provided for the establishment of a monarchy. In Deuteronomy 17, there is provision for just such a thing. It says, uh, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, this is before they've even come in to the land, you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. <clears throat> Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold." So in Deuteronomy 17, there's provision for the establishment of a monarchy. There's nothing in and of itself that is wrong with Israel wanting to establish a monarchy. But of course, God warns them in the law, you have to put these tight boundaries around the monarchy. 
so that it doesn't become something that is other, so that it doesn't become this uh, vehicle for accumulation of wealth and injustice, that ultimately the king would lead Israel down uh, a toward path. And this is exactly what Samuel is warning them that is going to happen. Samuel doesn't say, be careful that these things do hap- don't happen. He's saying, these things are going to happen. Your kings will accumulate and acquire for themselves. Because Samuel is picking up on what God is saying to him. That Israel is choosing a monarchy. Not because of the convenience of its system of government. Not because it could wants a, a seat at the table necessarily in geopolitical powers. But they are saying, we want to be like all the other nations. Would you give us a king like all the other nations? The motivation for the request is why the request is evil. Israel has forsaken its call to be unlike all the other nations. Everything about Israel is constructed to make them weirdos in the land. Israel is weird. They're intentionally, purposefully, flagrantly weird. All you have to do is read the law itself to see how weird they are. I'm reading in the book of Leviticus right now and all these laws of things they can and cannot eat. I mean, these people can't eat pigs. What kind of people can't eat bacon? What kind of place is this? This is a weird place. And, and this is, the whole country goes camping together. Habitually, every year. The Feast of Tabernacles. They go outside and they camp. Imagine as a foreigner, you're coming into Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles and everybody's, they're just outside. They're just sleeping outside. And they're like, yeah, this is what we do every year. Feast of Tabernacles, outside. National camping trip. These people are meant to be weird. And they're not supposed to just sort of incidentally accept this. They're supposed to embrace it. God has called them as a people to be purposefully, wildly different from all the nations around them. Because when they occupy that identity, when they accept this vocation of weirdness in the land, they become a signpost in the world that the real and right ruler of heaven and earth is Israel's God. The weirdness is supposed to be this watchword to everybody who looks in on them. Israel's God is not like every other God. Israel itself is not like every other people. And here is this strange people saying, we don't want to be strange anymore. We don't want to be different. Now, this is something that we can all identify with, yes? It is difficult to be the weirdo in the room. As a perpetual weirdo, I can, I can say this from personal testimony. I'm fine with who I am. I'm fine that I'm a strange guy, but at some point, it's just exhausting to have everybody looking sideways at you and saying, man, that guy is weird. It is, it is hard to go against the grain. It is hard to swim upstream. 
And oftentimes we define our lives by just going with the flow. Let's just make this easier. I don't stand up here and say this judging you people. I'm saying this is my experience. My wife is making a a temporary fence in our backyard to sort of section off the part where we want the dogs to go out and do their business and run around and be crazy and not murder our chickens. And she, uh, she dug these holes to put fence posts in. And she was off by inches so that it would be a little crooked. She's redigging all of the holes. And I was like, what are you doing? She said, well, it's not, it's, it's not going to be perfectly straight. And I was like, this is a temporary fence. Just throw those jokers in there. Let's get this done. I am all about doing the easier. That is, that is the way I generally leave my, live my life. Find the path of least resistance. Do that thing. So when Israel here in, in 1 Samuel 8 is saying, we just want to be like everybody else, I get it. But they are not... They are not just saying we prefer the king. They are saying we reject God as king. And I find that the things that I pursue, the things that I crave, even when they are legitimate and good and acceptable, I am oftentimes not pursuing them with God in mind at all. My appetites, my cravings, They are about what I want. And I just don't care what God wants. To be perfectly honest, even when I pursue good things, I don't even think about what God wants. I'm just living my life the way that I want to live. And in some way, that's like the most natural way to to live your life. How else should you live? The way that you want to live. Somebody's impinging upon you living the way you want to live. Get those jokers out of your way. Do your thing, my friend. But if we accept the the story that the Bible is telling, we are supposed to live in light of the Creator God of the universe who is not far away, who has not abandon this world for us to just figure out however we want to do things. But the Creator God, the infinite source of life and love, wants to be involved in our lives. And we reject Him. Mindlessly leave Him aside. Treat Him as if He is furniture in the room. Well, you know, that maybe sometimes I'll think about what God wants, but I'm just going to do what I want. That's, that's why God speaks to Samuel and said, it is not you that they're rejecting. It's not because you've done a poor job of judging. It's not that they've hated judges forever. They are rejecting me. And... and Isn't it a bit scary to see what God's response to the request is? He says yes. 
See, this is, this is what's frightening about this passage. We assume that when we want bad things and when God is, whatever, mad at us or something, He will smack us on the hand and say no. But that is not the worst possible outcome. The worst possible outcome is maybe this, where God says, you can have what you want. We call this the passive judgment of God. This is not God sending a thunderbolt to strike you down. This is God saying, you may eat all that you wish to eat. If you leave a small child with a bag of sugar and a spoon, and you let them eat what they want to eat, they will be happy for a moment or two, and then they will be deeply, deeply unhappy because they have ate and ate and ate until their belly is hurting, until their body feels like it's going haywire, and they want to throw up. That is the passive judgment of God. Fine. Have it your way. See how this goes. This here is a word of warning. You are, of course, invited to bring all of your desires before God. He wants you to do that. He wants you to pray, even though He already knows. Even though He's not missing any information on you, He's not missing some pages from your file, He sees everything about you, He knows everything about you, and yet He still invites you to bring all of your desires to Him. He wants you to pray for them. But when you pray in such a way that you just insist the only option, the only right outcome is that you give me A, B, or C, and you don't at all leave room to say, your will be done, not mine. But you just fix and bend your heart around God giving you what you want. Be careful. Because God may answer your prayer with a yes. When God says no, that may not be God holding out on you or lacking generosity with you. That is God being merciful and kind to you and saying, oh little child, you do not need that bag of sugar. Would you trust me? Trusting is difficult. Hearing no is painful. But when we live our lives with God in view and not just our own desires and plans, we submit to the possibility that God might know better than you. God might know better than me. And His no might be a better gift than a yes. We are people who by nature habitually pray, let my will be done. Let my will be done. When Jesus comes, His disciples want to know how they should pray. And how does Jesus teach them to pray? He teaches them to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? And it's important to see the structure of that prayer that He starts off that prayer 
putting God in the central and prime place. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name famous. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, Jesus knows that His disciples' inclination, our inclination, Israel's inclination is to pray and to ask and to demand of God, do what I will. Establish my kingdom. Give me a king just like everybody else. And Jesus is teaching us and teaching His people life is not meant to be lived that way. You are meant to, you are free to give your desires to God. But you should train your desires to be bent around the kingship of God. Of course, nobody does this very well. I do not do this very well. And what we'll see is the kings of Israel are just this long, long litany of failing this test. I mean, even the very best king, at some moment or another, has these moments of profound weakness where they give themselves over to my will be done and not yours. All the things that Samuel prophesies for them, they come true for Israel. And have they not come true for us? When God has given us what we've demanded, life does not unfold before us in some utopia. We ultimately find out we are the toddler with a bag of sugar. And things are not going well. Because we reject God. We have rejected God. Again and again and again. In fact, the story of Israel is such that we see that every single Israelite fails this test as much as every single person in here has failed this test. Except there is yet one faithful Israelite. Jesus lives his life perpetually asking the question, what is it that my Father wills? His life in his example and in his teaching revolves around putting God in right place of prominence. And at the crucial moment of Jesus' life, when He is facing the fulfillment of His divine vocation, when He is standing in the face of betrayal and death, when He agonizes over this central question, my will be done or God's will be done with buckets of blood and stress and sweat streaming out of him, he prays the prayer that neither Israel nor I could ever pray. 
if you would take this cup from me, please. But if not, your will be done. And it was the will of God to crush him. It was the will of God that his son would drink the cup of his wrath. Because Jesus is the king that Israel did not even have the appetite to crave. Jesus is the king who is able to recognize and exemplify the kingship of God himself. He is the king that Israel has rejected over and over and over again in their story and in our story as well. He is the king that we have put our hand to and said, no, but we will have what we want. Jesus is the rejected king who takes upon himself the burden of our rejection so that he might rescue his people and rightly be the king that we've always needed even if he's not the one that we could ask for. Jesus is the king that stands here next to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 who Israel turns aside from. And it is for that reason that the king himself must ride in and rescue his people. The people of Jesus' day fall into the same trap. Give us a king like every other king, a king with an army, a king with power, a king with might, a king with the sword, who will do what I want him to do. And every single moment, Jesus rejects their definition, rejects the way that is easy, rejects the way of the sword that is just like every other king, just like every other nation. And he establishes himself as the singularly weird, strange, and so much better king over heaven and earth who says I will not be like the king of every other nation I will not rule like every other king rules I did not come to serve but to be to be served but to serve I did not come to conquer with might I came to show the might of God by taking upon myself the weakness the sin the frailty of this world and let the wrath of God pour out on me I did not come to convey wrath to you but to receive wrath on your behalf Jesus is not like the king that Israel demands and we are so much better for it and if you are like me who has been so tricked by our appetites and the ease of this world to constantly ask God to be like everything else that's around us, the cross stands in front of you where God is mercifully saying to you, no, I will not be that kind of king for you. No, I will not change for you. He stands arms extended saying, I am the king that you want. You and I are positioned before the cross today, right here, and every day. This is the emblem of the king that is on offer. If you are here and you have, you have given yourself over to your appetites, if you have lived your life steering your own car with your own will as your compass, if you have failed to look to see what God might want for you in any given moment of the day, 
the cross stands in front of you and offers you assurance that your king has always known your weakness. Your king has always known your faulty and untrustworthy appetites. And he comes to rescue you. If you are here and you have lived your life on your own self-rule, and you insist that you know what's best, and you will do what you want to do, and you may or may not sprinkle some Jesus on top, the cross stands in front of you as an invitation to what is better and also a sobering reminder of what may come. Because gathered around that cross were people who say, it is our will to crucify Him. It is our will to put Him on the cross, to crush Him, God may say yes to you. If you have come to the end of that judgment, if God has said yes to you for a long time and let you pursue your own appetites, and you are, you are belly sick, you are tired of your own will and your own way, God wants to deal mercifully with you this morning. Because even in this, he is not like every other king. He does not have a jail sentence for you. He does not have a system by which you can re-earn your favor with him. If you are done eating your fill of the thing that you have craved, and you are so ashamed of the things that you have done. God stands before you as the sufficiently victorious king who when you turn to him, he is happy to welcome you home. Immediately, fully, you can come home. This king will not be miserly in his generosity with you. He is not like other kings. Come home and feast at his table. I'm going to pray for us, and I'd invite you to just close your eyes and pray with me. I'm going to just be silent just for a few seconds. Um, There's not a lot of silence in our world. I'd like you to just consider looking back over your past week, over your past month, year, whatever, and ask yourself who you have been living for. Where has God been in your decision-making? If you were to be honest, have you insisted that God be this way or that way or even said you have outright rejected Him? Where has He been this past little while?
King of Heaven, we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. There is mercy in that conviction. I pray, God, for those who are here who are discomforted to stand before You and be profoundly uncomfortable realizing that we have just treated You as an object. We have treated You as peripheral in our lives. We have sought to make ourselves king of our lives. We have tried to make You like every other king in the world. We have ignored You. We have used Your name in vain. I pray, God, that You would bring relief to those whom You convict. That we would respond to conviction with repentance. A turning towards Your rule and reign that we might see that You stand before us in acceptance and love. That You do not put us in probation. That You do not test us out to see if We'll make the cut this time. You are lavish in your mercy. You are more loyal to your subjects than your subjects to you. There is no king like you, King Jesus. God, we are a people who just like Israel have said time and again, we want a king like every other king. And you are so much better than we could have asked or imagined. God, I pray that you would renew and refine our appetites. That you would make us hungry for you. That you would make us hungry for knowing you. Hungry for being near you. Hungry for looking to you as our King. And God, I thank you that for all those who, who came in here burdened by shame, burdened by the, by the knowing that we have stumbled and strayed far away from You, that we have launched rebellion against You, the rightful King. Pray, God, that they would look to the cross and find there the sufficiency of Your work knowing that You have done everything to quickly bring them home and make them a son or daughter. God, soften our hearts. Let our hearts be soft before You. Be patient with our hardness, O God. Renew us by the power of Your Holy Spirit that Jesus might be exalted God might be worshipped and loved. Amen.